Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hey, witches, just a heads up that in today's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about grooming and making references to sexual violence. If this is an episode that you need to skip, we really encourage you to do that. Take care of yourself, and we'll see you next time. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, I have a really bold suggestion for the sorting chat. Ooh, what is it? I want to talk about what happens in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood <laughs> Prince. Because I just finished rereading this book. It is mm-hmm. only the third time I've ever read it. I read it once when it originally came out, and then I read it again for our original run. And then this is the third time I'm reading it. I don't know if you remember, but we got in possibly our biggest fight ever when we recorded an episode about this for the original (laughs) run. It was definitely a movie episode because we had that fight in front of Neil. And it was based almost entirely on my confusion about the plot of this book. And upon rereading it, I continue (laughs) to be deeply confused. Oh my gosh. I do remember that. I do because I remember I had so much anxiety about editing that episode that the fight does not even appear in the unedited Patreon bonus episodes because the first thing I did was cut it out of the original track. It's been deleted forever. It never happened. I remember my hands sweating. (laughs) (laughs) We don't like conflict. No, I handle conflict very poorly. So I would say that it is not at all your fault that the plot of this book is a bit confusing because it is largely explained in the book that follows. Yeah, which during our original run, I had never read (laughs) 
<laughs> and also, as somebody who has read both this one and the subsequent one multiple times, I still have trouble holding on to the threads of what's happening. And so I am able to answer possibly all of your questions about plot to varying degrees of um, satisfaction. Faction? Well, we'll see how satisfied I am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you how satisfied I am. Are you not satisfied? <laughs> oh, no, it's entertained. Never mind. Okay, so spoilers for the seventh book in this conversation. So if you don't want any, if somehow you are using this podcast as a read-along <laughs> podcast, which would be truly a wild choice, um, just just skip through the rest of uh, the sorting chat. Okay, question one. What the fuck is Dumbledore up to? <laughs> I know. It's truly, it's truly bananas. He has a Shirk-funded research project that he has left to the last minute. Funding's about to run out. The funding is about to run out. He can't reapply for more funding because he's dying. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing that will stop an academic from reapplying for more funding. Death. Certain death. So it's a little bit ill-advised, the like sudden and rapid, like, let's try to cram all this stuff into this one year. Okay, so it's a little bit him panicking. Yeah, I think some people might disagree with that, but I think it's a like, oh, I'm running out of time. The clock is ticking. So that relates to question Two, which is why does he need Snape to agree to murder him? Okay, so this is totally stuff that only makes sense after you've read book seven multiple times. Because the first time through, you're like, ah! <laughs> Wait, what's a horcrux still, though? <laughs> is it a hallow? Mm -mm. So before book six starts, sometime in the two weeks... <laughs> Between. Oh my god, it's only two weeks! I know! So sometime between the... Dumbledore shows back up with this withered hand and is like, Oh, this? Don't ask about it. I will draw attention to it constantly. But I absolutely will not tell you what happened. Why? The time will come, Harry. And then it doesn't because Dumbledore dies. Oh my god. So Dumbledore sometime in the two weeks between the end of year five and the beginning of year six, Dumbledore goes on an adventure and finds the ring, mm -hmm. tries to destroy it, gets a curse in his hand, which Snape then stops at the hand, but doesn't stop enough to prevent it from killing Dumbledore. So the curse is going to kill him. It would have killed him right away, but Snape stops it. He slows its roll. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that Dumbledore knows about Voldemort's job for Draco, that Draco needs to kill Dumbledore. Yes, I think that's true. Presumably because Snape told him. There's no one else who could have told him. So Snape does know in that opening scene where he makes the unbreakable vow, mm -hmm. he does know what he is making a vow to do. I think he must. That was a point of confusion for me because the way he words it of like, don't say it out loud, but mm -hmm. the Dark Lord has also let me in on this little secret really sounds like a lie. Yeah. <laughs> 
it really sounds like he's lying and trying to convince Bellatrix that he's actually like in, but he must actually know because he told Dumbledore. So I would say this is one of those instances where I don't think that there's decent textual evidence, but drawing on the evidence that we do have, which is that Snape is the only person who Dumbledore has on the inside in Voldemort's circle, how else could Dumbledore have known that Draco is? So he doesn't, Dumbledore doesn't want Malfoy to have to murder him, Mm -hmm. presumably because murder, as this book establishes, rips your soul in half. Mm -hmm. It's the ultimate evil. But that's chill for Snape to do? Or there is a different context of killing. So when Snape does it, it's not actually murder because he knows that Dumbledore's dying. And so it's actually assisted suicide. Potentially. Like it has a different ontological relationship. Like Dumbledore has asked Snape to do something for him. And so Mm -hmm. it will not cause Snape the damage that it would have caused Malfoy. Right. Because Snape is doing a kindness, not only for Dumbledore, but also to save Draco from having to commit this act. I don't think Snape likes it. I don't think he's into the responsibility. Yeah, no, he's obviously very upset about it. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so why won't he explain anything to Harry? Like, why Why is he such a coy little bitch is kind of the just the only phrase that comes to mind for Dumbledore. And again, remember that two weeks before this book starts, he literally says the words to Harry, I'm going to tell you everything. I'm going to tell you everything. Then he shows up two weeks later and is like, tee No, I'm not. I've got a secret. I'm going to tell you everything, Harry. Oh, that really reasonable question you just asked me about the fact that Malfoy is very clearly a double agent and Snape is obviously helping him. Uh, I'm furious you would ask. How dare you? How dare you ask me to explain anything, even though I just told you that I'd explain everything. Not that. Yeah, so why doesn't he explain anything to Harry? I would argue that compared to movie Dumbledore, who has never read the books, who is like, Could be anything. Could be a tin can. I don't know. Tom Riddle is unknowable. He could have made anything a horcrux. (laughs) Dumbledore, in this book, requires Harry to learn specific pieces of information in a specific order so that... Harry dies last? Jesus. Or something like that. He knows that Harry is a horcrux, and he knows that Harry needs to die, so he's setting Harry up to do all of the other work that needs to happen and then go die. Yeah. Guys, I think Dumbledore sucks. (laughs) (gasps) I agree. I absolute legit cried when he died. Like, yeah, same. I, mm-hmm. But god damn. I know, right? Don't meet your heroes. <laughs> oh. oh my god. Because they're trying to get you to die. <laughs> the greater good. The greater good. That's so sinister. Watching the way that he uses Harry, that he uses Snape, that he plays everyone and confides in basically no one is, um, it's grim, but it also, I think, Marcel, reinforces one of your 
most deeply held theories about Dumbledore. And I want to get into that theory, but I want to do it in the main text of this episode. So um, you want to get into it? Yes, but before, are there any other lingering questions that you have about this book? Yeah, this is my question. Why does he insist that Slughorn's memory is crucial when he, one, already knows what a Horcrux Mm -hmm. is, two, already knows that Slughorn is lying Mm -hmm. and told Tom Riddle what a Horcrux is, three, already (laughs) knows that Tom Riddle used that knowledge to make Horcruxes, multiple Horcruxes. So why is it so desperately important (laughs) that Harry find out what he hid in this memory? This is such a great question because it's the question that I don't think occurs to most of us the first time we read the book. We're just like, yeah, you need to know. Got to get that memory. And then you get the memory and you're like, oh my God, Horcruxes. But then when you read it a second or a third or a tenth time, you're like, (laughs) why though? And I believe it is because it tells us how many. I believe it is because it gives us an idea of how many Horcruxes Tom Riddle makes. But it's wrong! I know. I know. I know. (laughs) Which, again, comes back to Dumbledore being a gatekeeping nightmare. (laughs) Oh my god, he really is. So, like, yeah, it confirms that Voldemort used Horcruxes, but Dumbledore already knew that. He tells us that he already knew that, basically, because he's like, don't worry, Harry, I destroyed, you destroyed one and I destroyed the other. your Dumbledore impression is so good. (laughs) Not even trying. (laughs) Air flip. Um, Yeah, I really do think it's just the number. The incorrect number. Oh, let me rephrase. Mm. The incorrect number, yes, because Voldemort thinks that he split his soul into seven parts by making six horcruxes. But Dumbledore knows that he split his soul into one additional part that is Harry. So he's just hoping that that memory happens to include a young Tom Riddle postulating the number of pieces he might hypothetically in the future split his soul into. Indeed. Cool. But remember, as Dumbledore says to Harry, I taught Tom Riddle, I know his style. (laughs) Just like, whoo! Well, let's talk more about what it means for Dumbledore to have taught Tom Riddle and to know his style. Let's do it. (laughs) It's a brand new book. But that doesn't mean we're starting with a blank slate. So let's review some important things we already know in revision. So we're starting off this season by talking about pedagogy. But obviously we have already talked about pedagogy twice. This is pedagogy the third. Pedagogy three. Pedagogy returns again. (laughs) Anyway, so let's review a little bit about how we've already discussed it. I went back to the first episode where we talked about it, which was book three, episode one. And there was this whole like introduction to the concept of pedagogy. And I was like, hmm, I have no memory of writing this. But (laughs) here are some of the things I talked about. Pedagogy, as a reminder, refers to the way you teach 
and the philosophy behind your methods. That's what we mean when we say pedagogy. Mm -hmm. It's not just a fancy word for teaching. It's kind of like the theory of teaching Mm -hmm. and how it's applied. So discussions of pedagogy cover a whole bunch of different aspects of it, including things like how people learn, Mm -hmm. as in, you know, rote memorization versus critical thinking, who is capable of learning? Ooh. So historically, education has been extremely gendered, classed, and deeply racialized. Really? Yeah, I know. Shocking. The idea of like the segregation of learning or like going all the way back to like the Socratic dialogues and like basically the implied assumption in Socrates' work that women are not capable of philosophical thinking. <laughs> I mean. I mean, we're living proof. <laughs> Questions of what people should learn, which are questions that point us to conversations about curriculum reform and canon and different kinds of literacy. The fights that I get in with boomers about why it's actually not a problem that students are bad at spelling because it doesn't come up. And then they say, well, but what if all of the computers broke tomorrow? And then I'm like, well, we'd have bigger problems. And then some sort of larger philosophical questions of like why people learn, which might point us to scholars like Bell Hooks, who wrote about education as the practice of freedom. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. I was just really into listening to you. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> Way back in book three, episode one, we started to grapple with what pedagogy looks like by making a teaching alignment chart, mm. which personally I think was a rather fun exercise that helped us Think about teachers who believe in the value of institutional and disciplinarian structures as pedagogical tools, who believe that the threat of failure increases rigor, like McGonagall, versus teachers who rebel against institutional norms, like Barty Crouch Jr. disguised as Professor Moody. So that was our sort of lawful versus chaotic Access. Mm-hmm. We also looked at teachers who are invested in creating an environment where students can and do learn, like Remus Lupin, versus teachers who are actively invested in weeding out students or standing in the way of their learning, like Umbridge. Mm-hmm. So this would be our good, neutral, evil axis. Precisely. So... We also talked about pedagogy again in book four, episode six, where we dove into the question of why Barty Crouch Jr. seems to be such an effective teacher, (laughs) which I still think is a very funny question. So in that episode, Marcel, you introduced us to a book called Pedagogy, the Question of Impersonation, Mm -hmm. which seemed quite evidently useful. (laughs) And that book discusses the idea of the teacher as a performative role in the Judith Butler sense of performance, meaning one's identity as a teacher isn't a costume you're putting on, but rather an identity that is constantly being produced and reproduced through a whole series of personal and social and institutional scripts. Which can include costumes. Which can include costumes. (laughs) And we kind of concluded that, like, there's not really a difference between pretending to be a teacher and everybody thinking you're a teacher and actually being a teacher and everybody thinking that you're a teacher. 
Yeah. Those are not meaningfully different things. And that also means that we can't just shock our roles as teachers and be like, look at me, I'm subverting all the power in the classroom because I've, I've decided that power is not real. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a white guy wearing a hoodie. <laughs> anyway, because that power is constantly being produced and reinforced by a whole bevy of systems that we and our students are located within. Mm-hmm. But in the Half-Blood Prince, we have a few new examples of teachers we haven't encountered before. We have Professor Dumbledore, of course, who gives Harry private lessons. And we have a brand new teacher, Horace Slughorn. Mm -hmm. And we have the Half-Blood Prince, who we will come to learn is just Snape. But Harry does, on more than one occasion, talk about how much he's learned from the prince. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we can think of these Three examples as opportunities to look at new models of Slytherin pedagogy. Ooh, all three of them? All three of them, Marcel? All three. Now, Hannah, Mm -hmm. you are going to give us some new pedagogy theory this episode. But before you do, I propose we wrap our heads around these new models of pedagogy by using the aforementioned teacher alignment chart. So I copied and pasted it back into our script. But for listeners who aren't looking at it, as a reminder, the x-axis is chaotic, neutral, lawful, and the y-axis is good, neutral, evil. So we've got, you know, over in chaotic, good, um, God, I don't know if we actually put anybody in chaotic, good. I no, we had someone for we had someone for everyone. I think we put moody and chaotic good. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah, absolutely. And like over unlawful evil, we had Umbridge because she's like really attached to rules and actively against her students thriving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had uh we had Professor McGonagall in Lawful Good, but as we were having that conversation about how she treated Peter Pettigrew as a student and how she currently treats Neville as a student, you suggested, Hannah, that she shouldn't be in the good category because she's not good. You know, I am revising that opinion upon having read this book because of the conversation she has with Neville where she pushes back against his grandmother's assumption that some classes matter more than others and that he should not focus on the things that he is obviously skilled in Mm -hmm. because those are quote-unquote soft options. Right. And directs him to, you know, you're not strong in transfiguration. That is not a problem. He also never enjoyed it. She she never enjoyed it. He never enjoyed the class. Which is her topic. And she's like, that's fine. It's not the only important thing to learn. Mm -hmm. You're good at charms. You're good at herbology. Take those things. Focus on the areas where you can thrive. So I I kind of am like, maybe we can knock Minerva back up into into lawful good. Because she cares about structures and rules. But Mm -hmm. that is really a moment where she shows that she also cares about the well-being of her students. This is an excellent point. Anyway, I like her. But really the question is, where do we put (laughs) Dumbledore, (laughs) Slughorn, and the Half-Blood Prince? Because I think the Half-Blood Prince should be somewhere different than Snape. Mm -hmm. Where Snape was neutral evil, right? I think. He was either chaotic or neutral. 
evil. So we agree he's evil because he is actively opposed to Harry learning. We decided that it was neutral evil because we put Lockhart in chaotic evil because Lockhart was like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. Woo! Whereas Snape is like, I hate all of you. I hate all of you, but here's a lesson plan. Yeah. (laughs) Here's an essay that I am going to make you do explicitly because I think it's too hard for you. What a jerk. Okay, so on first thought, I am going to propose that we place Slughorn in the position of true neutral. Mm -hmm. That is between good and evil and between chaotic and lawful. Okay, tell me why. I think that he is neither fully invested in his students' learning nor invested in defying them at every turn, but rather selectively invested in some (laughs) of them doing well. And I think that he is invested in some aspects of the structure of Hogwarts. He is not a totally chaotic figure. He has lesson plans. He is actually teaching them things. But he is also prone towards favoritism, to fudging the rules for students he likes more than others. So I think he ends up in that middle spot less because he is like really neutral and more because he is so selective about how he approaches different students. Mm-hmm. That selectiveness does seem to be based on talent as much as connection. So it's not that he only favors the well-connected students. He favors them and he favors the ones who are really good at making bats come out of your nostrils. Absolutely. We'll get into this more in uh, in Transfiguration, but mm-hmm. he has a logic to how he interacts with students that is has a kind of neutrality to it in the sense that there is not necessarily a predetermination of who he's going to be interested in. That he's, you know, responding to the student's own characteristics in terms of how he engages with them. Excellent. So that's Slughorn. Now, if we have agreed that Snape is in the neutral evil category because he has a teaching plan, he has a method, he's just really mean (laughs) and a bully... Where would you put the Half-Blood Prince and why? Okay, so Snape is in neutral evil for me because he is opposed to student well-being. I mean, Harry's in particular, but also Hermione's. He's just mean. But he's orderly. He has systems. He really likes making students follow the rules. But he emphasizes so much in his Defense Against the Dark Arts class that he's not interested in rote learning. Like he does, he's not impressed with Hermione's ability to memorize textbooks. Mm -hmm. He's interested in critical thinking and actually engaging with ideas. And if you critically think and then decide you disagree with him, that's also bad. You have to critically think and then agree with him, which is a very particular kind of teacher. (laughs) But I would say that that kind of teacher is neutral evil, Mm -hmm. is how I would describe them. Yeah. But the half blood prince, I think, is much more chaotic. In the sense that the Half-Blood Prince is all about inventing new things, 
you know, pushing back against the textbook, pushing back against received wisdom, mm-hmm. not assuming that anything he reads is true, always trying to find different ways, always saying, you know, like, why are you bo- bothering with brewing all of these antidotes? Just stick a bezoar in their mouth. They'll be fine. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's a very chaotic approach to the study of potions. And is also because his pedagogy is sort of self-directed, mm-hmm. I think is neutral in terms of, of good or evil. It almost, it's almost a sort of doesn't apply because he's making these notes for himself. Right. He's not thinking about an audience of potential future students. It right. ends up being really useful to Harry and teaching him. Mm-hmm. Harry thinks that the Half-Blood Prince is chaotic good. Harry thinks that this is a figure who is trying to help him. He thinks this is a friend. Right. He is wrong. He is completely wrong, right? This is not somebody who is at all interested in him. He just happened to find some marginalia that's useful. And so that's why I would put him in that neutral spot. You know, Hermione thinks he's evil because he made a a mean spell that makes you bleed a bunch. But like, that's also not true, right? He's not, he's just like a person making new stuff up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. regardless of like the moral stance of that stuff that he's making up yeah this makes a lot of sense to me and i don't know why this only occurred to me right now but this is the standard potions book right since the 1950s they have not updated the textbook even though it is obvious that people are discovering new things all the time yeah snape has been teaching potions for like 11 years or whatever. Out of the standard textbook that he knows sucks. Yeah. And has not been teaching all of these tricks he knows. We have no evidence that that's the case, right? Like there's no... Because the kind of intelligence that Snape values Mm -hmm. is the intelligence that will do the same thing he did. Exactly. Right? He doesn't want to help students by sharing the hacks he figured out. He wants to withhold that knowledge because he values intelligence that reproduces his own intelligence. That's right. So he values other people tracing the same path he traced. He is that classic person who is like, I had to suffer in order to learn. Yes. And therefore, you also should suffer in order to learn. Yes, that is exactly right. Because he is furious that Harry has been using his book and calls Harry a cheat when Harry is just following his instructions. Mm-hmm. How is it cheating? <laughs> I mean, the whole model of education where you're like, there's information that would be helpful to you, and I am going to strategically withhold that information from you, is like, the reason why surveillance technology for exams and tests has been on the rise. Oh, my God. Because it's like, my goal is to test you in a way that's about you not having access to the tools that, like, say, I as a professional always have access to. Mm-hmm. Like, why am I making you write an essay, but you're not allowed to Google anything? I Google everything constantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why would I take away the tools I use <laughs> to do the thing I'm testing you to do? Oh, my God. 
doesn't make a lick of sense. It's like how at chef school you have to cook, but you're not allowed to use any ingredients. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like that. (laughs) Chef school. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called, right? Chef school. So that leaves us with Dumbledore. Oh. (laughs) Ah, yes. Where, Hannah? Where, Where shall we put Dumbledore? I find this one really tricky. So I didn't remember... You didn't remember that he needs Harry to die at the right time? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like my opinion of him as a teacher really changes when I remember that he's training Harry up to be a child soldier who will ultimately die. A child suicide bomber, right? Yeah, that's grim as shit. So I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't know, man, like chaotic evil off off the charts literally off the charts i don't know where to put him yeah because i do believe he loves harry sure yeah i mean love like is used as an excuse for all kinds of abuse and harm and i don't think that should be treated as though it counteracts the horrible things he is doing to this child but i do believe he loves harry and i do believe that he is actively invested in harry learning Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. <laughs> the reason he's so invested in Harry learning is pretty grim. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where to put him. His methods are structured mm-hmm. and orderly, but he refuses to explain them yeah. at any point. His goal is for Harry to learn, but very selectively to learn what Dumbledore wants him to learn, but also explicitly to not learn the things that Dumbledore needs him to not know. Yeah. He's not teaching Harry about critical thinking. So in that sense, he's similar to Snape, where he wants Harry to come to the same conclusions that he has come to. And if Harry comes to different conclusions, Harry's wrong. And if Harry has questions about things Dumbledore has decided aren't important... Dumbledore's furious. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I think is really key about Dumbledore as a teacher that really stood out to me in this reading is how frequently Dumbledore tells other people how smart he is, which is an absolutely bonkers thing to do that I have never in my life heard an actual smart person do. Like, listen, I know a lot of smart people. They don't walk around being like, I'm I'm extremely intelligent. So just take my word for this. wild yeah i feel like i have encountered that before but (laughs) i can't think of an example off the top of my head uh so awful let's all watch for it i bet you there's some terrible man somewhere who's doing exactly that guaranteed all right i've i want to say so much more about these three teachers but i think we should save Mm -hmm. it so uh shall we move on okay let's go This year's assignments are going to be so wickedly difficult that even Hermione might make a mistake. (gasps) I know. Let's hurry on to transfiguration class. So Marcel, despite the fact that in this book we see everybody encountering a new level of theoretical difficulty, I actually want to do something really simple today, which is that I want to tell you about a single article that I read and really liked. 
I love that. Okay, tell me. So this article is called Collectors, Nightlights, and Allies, Oh My, White Mentors in the Academy. Mm. And it was published by Maricela Martinez-Cola in the journal Understanding and Dismantling Privilege. All right. So Dr. Martinez-Cola is an assistant professor of sociology at Morehouse College. This is a very recent article. Okay. Her research primarily focuses on the critical comparative study of race, class, and gender, particularly in the history of education. So she's really interested in how race, class, and gender constructed the segregation of education in the U.S. sort of pre-1950s. Okay. And can I ask a quick clarifying question? What happened in the 1950s? Like, why why is that like a marker? Yeah, so that was, there was a a landmark case, uh, the Brown versus Board of Education case, which was a 1954 Supreme Court ruling that desegregated education Mm. in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I mean, and there's lots and lots of other stuff that happened before and after that, but that's sort of the, she's looking at the period prior to that. Right. That's a major moment. Mm -hmm. There's other historians who study the period after that. Cool. But she also writes and thinks and talks about, you know, contemporary experiences of marginalization uh, for minoritized students. Particularly, she's interested in the experiences of students of color in our contemporary post-secondary system. So... This piece, Collectors, Nightlights, and Allies, Oh My, is specifically about a conundrum that faces a lot of Black students, Indigenous students, and students of color when they enter into what she calls historically white institutions. Mm. And that is the structural absence of mentors of color Mm -hmm. and the need, as a result, to be mentored by white faculty. Gotcha. Okay. And what she does in this, so she's using an approach that is rooted in autoethnography, which is a methodology that is about sort of telling stories of your own experience. It's a really important method in critical race studies as a field because it is about attending to and legitimizing lived experience and knowledges that emerge out of those lived experiences. And so she's really rooting this article both in her own experience of having been mentored, but also in conversations she's had with other students of color about their experiences of being mentored. And this is sort of a knowledge of forms of mentorship that emerges out of the lived experience of students of color. All right. Okay. So she gives us, as we can tell from the title, three kinds of mentors. The first one, which I do think is going to be the most important for our conversation, is the collector. So I'm going to quote from the article. Here's what she says about collectors. Quote, there are white mentors who will collect you. They are mentors who will want to add you to the cadre of students of color that they have decided to help. These are the ones that will trot you out to events, ask you to represent the university at some panel during the admissions process, or ask you to serve on some type of diversity committee to help them figure out a solution to a problem they created for themselves. End quote. I foresee the usefulness of this model. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay. It's like, wow, there's a lot of them in this book, huh? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of collecting in this book, which makes this, I think, a very useful frame. Mm -hmm. So she does maintain that the collector can be useful to students of color. 
because they often have access to resources that they can connect you with and they mean well. Mm -hmm. And so they will try to help you. But they are racist. Right. Theirs is what she calls a benevolent racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're often patronizing, belittling, and unthinkingly reinforce racist stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So she gives an example of a white mentor who asked her to speak at an event about what it was like for her to be the result of affirmative action. Wow. And so how that's like, oh, you have a bunch of deeply racist assumptions about how I got where I am and what my experience has been like as a student of color, you are trying to give me an opportunity and maybe I can use that opportunity. You think you're helping me, but the way in which you are helping me really betrays how like profoundly you have not done the work. Right, right. Okay, so that's the collector. So that's the collector. And she says collectors are absolutely in the majority Mm. in universities. Mm -hmm. A lot of collectors think they're allies. Mm -hmm. And if you try to have a conversation with a collector about the fact that they're collectors, they will get deeply defensive. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. So she's like, your best case scenario with a collector is to use them for what they're good for and not try to have any further relationship with them. That checks out. The second type is the nightlight. So here's another quote. Mm-hmm. Quote, nightlights are white mentors who understand the challenges inherent at historically white institutions and can help students of color navigate the unknown and unforeseeable curves and twists of the academy. They figuratively provide light in the dark, unfamiliar places within academia. Mm -hmm. Nightlights may not relate to or understand the experiences of students of color, but they do recognize and acknowledge the existence of systemic racism within the academy, end quote. Mm -hmm. So nightlights help students to navigate the university. They reveal the hidden curriculum at work and a lot of education and often will help to smooth the way for their mentees. Mm -hmm. So they might, you know, nominate a student of color for a committee or a role that's not explicitly related (laughs) to diversity or like intervene in a racist interaction in a public setting Mm -hmm. or, you know, offer to read or engage with a student's work out of genuine interest in it. Not because, you know, they're using that student to like publicly make some sort of statement. So nightlights know how the system works and know how to help you navigate that system. I can see how a lot of collectors might see themselves as nightlights. Yes, absolutely. And it has a lot to do with how you are using the student Mm -hmm. versus helping the student. And then the final mentor type is the ally. So here again, I will will quote from Martinez Cola, who says, quote, Allies are by far the most aware of the experiences of students of color, usually because they can make meaningful connections to their own experiences without asserting equality, e.g. first-generation status, working or blue-collar class background, childhood in communities where they were the minority, Mm. or having other marginalized identities such as gender, LGBTQI+, or living with a disability. So, Allies do things like invite their students of color to conferences and introduce them to the right people, co-author articles with them. Mm. You know, they're meaningfully incorporating diverse scholarship into their syllabi. They're working Mm -hmm. to decolonize their pedagogy. What's really clear, and she uses this phrase over and over again, is that allies are doing the work. She specifies that all allies are nightlights. Mm -hmm. 
but not all nightlights are allies. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're going to be an ally, you're also going to be a nightlight for a student. But the fact that you're a nightlight doesn't necessarily mean that you have also done the work to be an ally. But collectors are neither. <laughs> and she says they're the easiest to spot collectors are because they're by far the most common. And here's something that really stood out to me is she describes collectors as using students of color as decorations in their lives, like a pair of earrings or a handbag that affirms their connection to a particular culture or identity. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And that I think is probably the perfect note on which to start talking about what collectors look like at Hogwarts. Oh yes. Let's do it. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Oh, you thought now that you had your owls, the fun was over? Well, nice try. You've got newts to study for. But we're going to keep calling the segment owls because we like the we like the sound effects. Owls! <laughs> you know that I want to talk about Dumbledore, but I think that we should start with Slughorn. And I would like you to take it away. Slughorn could not be a more perfect representation of the collector. Slughorn is entirely about finding students who are going to do things for him, mm-hmm. make him look good, mm-hmm. build on his connections, yeah. and just like draping them on himself like a series of ornaments. Totally. You know, right from the beginning, it is emphasized, it is the reason Dumbledore brings Harry to convince Slughorn to come back to Hogwarts. Dumbledore wants to collect Slughorn, but Dumbledore knows a collector when he sees one. Mm -hmm. He's taught them he knows their ways. (laughs) And so he's like, oh, how do I lure in a collector? I offer him something very shiny for his collection. Yeah. Which is also how Dumbledore treats Voldemort. But we're not talking about Dumbledore yet. We're talking about Slughorn. So Harry is this tempting prize, Mm -hmm. right? The ultimate collectible the boy who lived Mm -hmm. the chosen one and that is what lures slughorn back and we can really tell that that's the case because it's him showing harry his collection yes that is the moment that sparks that realization for him Mm -hmm. that he's showing off his beloved collection of students and then is like oh i could have you too And then instantly, on the train, on the way to Hogwarts, Mm -hmm. he starts collecting. And you can tell he has done prior research Mm -hmm. to figure out students who might have interesting connections that he can use. Mm -hmm. But he is also literally just walking through the train, spotting students he thinks he might like to have. Mm -hmm. Like, they are (laughs) not people to him. (laughs) 
No. Slughorn is living on the lamb, right? Like he's moving from living on the edge of Voldy. So Slughorn is on the lamb. He's moving from muggle house to muggle house. And yet he brings and unpacks his collection of students. And so he has it with him to show Harry. And Harry is, so Harry, Harry's a double prize for Slughorn, right? Because not only is he independently a treasure, right? The boy who lived slash the chosen one. But he's also the the only child of one of Slughorn's all-time favorites. Well, and then a triple treasure when he turns out to be so remarkably good at potions. Oh, yes. <laughs> Natural talent, my boy. Mm, must have gotten it from his mother. Ooh. Incredible. In. Incredible, yes. And even when he is talking about Sirius and Regulus, he refers to them as a set. He says he yes. would have liked the set. You would have liked to get the set. Oh. Right? Like, they are his Pokemon. He's got to catch them all. <laughs> but I also, I was, I was really sort of pondering what to make during this reread. Of Slughorn's attitude towards Muggleborn students. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think this article really helped me understand that. For sure. That Slughorn is benevolently racist mm -hmm. towards Muggleborn students, who are obviously meant to stand in for race in this book series that is not good at allegory. Yes, yes, <laughs> precisely. We've established. <laughs> but that is part of why Hermione is so frequently read as black mm -hmm. by a lot of readers, why Harry is frequently read as mixed race mm -hmm. because of the association between being muggle-born and being racialized. And so the way we see Slughorn talking about muggle-born students is a kind of like, sometimes it turns out they're great. <laughs> What is what is his line? Oh, you mustn't think I'm prejudiced. Mm. Mustn't I? Yeah, it's very, I love Muggle-born students. Some of my favorite students have been Muggle-born. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a really racist way to talk about people when you're talking about them in the way that Muggle-born is used allegorically. Yes, like you can really see Slughorn inviting one of his muggle-born students to talk about what it's like being the result of affirmative action. 100%. And you see the way he talks about muggle-born students behind closed doors mm -hmm. in that memory of being in his office with all of the Slytherin students and saying to Tom Riddle, you know, obviously you come from a long wizarding family. Mm -hmm. You know, you couldn't possibly be this talented if you weren't. Mm -hmm. Right? So behind closed doors, he's absolutely racist, but he'll make an exception for a student that he thinks will be useful for him. Mm -hmm. And you mustn't think he's prejudiced. You mustn't. You're not allowed to, Marcel. Stop it. <laughs> you can't make me. <laughs> you know, what stands out to me about Slughorn is to go back to how we were talking about his alignment, how deeply selective his pedagogy is. Mm -hmm. Right? How 
if he's not interested in you, you're not going to learn anything from him. You're not going to get any advantages from him. But the way that like if he does select you, you can make use of the connections he is going to offer you because those connections are real. He is having those parties. He is introducing you to powerful people. Harry gets some real opportunities. He doesn't want them. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he's not being offered to them. And he could, you know, if he had different goals, he could very well take advantage of what Slughorn offers him. I mean, we could say the same about Tom Riddle, right? Like Slughorn tells young Tom Riddle, like, you keep sending me crystallized pineapple and you'll be minister for magic in 10 years or something like that. Yeah. And it's not what Tom wants, mm-hmm. but... Tom is absolutely able to take advantage of Slughorn's interest in him Mm -hmm. to get what he does want, which is knowledge about the Horcruxes. That is super duper forbidden. (sighs) So Slughorn is, I think, thinking about him as a collector is absolutely, like, makes perfect sense to me. But I think he also then highlights how much other collecting is happening in this book. Mm -hmm. Because... A big part of what we're learning is what a collector Voldemort is. Yes. And we can totally see how Voldemort, as uh, if he had been allowed to be a teacher, Mm -hmm. would have been a collector. Like he was literally trying to get into Hogwarts so he could collect valuable things in Hogwarts. (laughs) But he would have collected students too, undeniably, right? Absolutely. Strategically located students that were useful to him and brought them in. Mm Mm-hmm you know, under his creepy cloak of teaching. Mm-hmm. Creepy teaching cloak. Yeah. Creepy teaching cloak. Yeah. <laughs> but Dumbledore is also a huge collector. Yeah. As we see, he's talking about collecting memories mm-hmm. the entire time. Mm-hmm. And the way that he brings Harry under his wing in this book is so collecty. Oh, yeah. It's so sinister in terms of this way. It almost reads to me like grooming, Mm, mm -hmm. right? The way he singles him out, tells him he's special, tells him that he can't tell anybody else what they talk about during the lessons. Mm -hmm. And I'm wary of framing Dumbledore as grooming Harry because these books are already so homophobic (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so transphobic and Dumbledore is the only canonically apparently canonically queer character Mm -hmm. in the series and so treating him as though he is grooming this young child plays so easily into those really homophobic stereotypes yeah so one of the reasons why grooming is effective I think IRL in real life, is because up until the point where it becomes abusive, it's what Slughorn is doing, right? It's providing opportunities and attention. I think grooming and collecting are really similar. Yeah. So I hear hear your point about how, like, saying that Dumbledore is grooming is a bridge too far, but I would say that he's just on this side of the bridge. Should we pause and define grooming? That's a good idea. So grooming is a pattern of behavior where somebody usually in a position of of power or authority sort of gradually and deliberately gains the trust of somebody who they have power over in order to ultimately abuse that person. Mm -hmm. So grooming is often 
usually associated with sexual violence or sexual assault. And it might look like, you know, a family member sort of singling out a child and making them feel really special, offering them presence or extra attention in order to gain access to them. Or in an educational setting, it might look like collecting, right? It might look like it probably begins with collecting. So, you know, singling out a student saying you're special, you deserve special attention, you deserve one-on-one mm-hmm. time with me, you deserve extra education, you know, you can really go somewhere. And, and something that we often see as a pattern in abusers in educational settings is that they will have collected a lot of students and only abused some of them. And that's part of the larger strategy is that then you'll have all of these other students who you have, who love you, right? who are ready to step up and defend you and say, well, they never did anything bad to me. And in fact, quite the opposite. They gave me all of these opportunities. They, they helped me in all of these ways. And so the collecting that we see Dumbledore doing is... Like you said, it like it might not quite be grooming, but like, mm-hmm. you know, he never harms Harry directly, mm-hmm. but he is doing something quite awful to Harry. Yeah, I think that ultimately the book series is trying to justify Dumbledore's behavior because it is Voldemort who puts Harry in the position of having this unfair burden of responsibility. We're supposed to believe that it's not Dumbledore, it's Voldemort. Yeah, and that really comes through in that conversation where it's so important for Dumbledore that Harry understand that he, Harry, is choosing to fight Voldemort. That Voldemort put him in the position... Voldemort is trying to make this feel like an inevitability because Voldemort believes in fate and power is bigger than him. And Dumbledore wants Harry to understand, like, if this prophecy didn't exist, but Voldemort had murdered your parents, how would you feel about him? And Harry's like, exactly the same. So Dumbledore wants Harry to be going into this with a feeling of agency rather than inevitability. Mm -hmm. And I wonder a little bit how much of that is because he knows that that will motivate Harry more Mm -hmm. and might even give him a shot at survival, Mm -hmm. right? That he's Mm -hmm. not going to go in inevitably being like, well, I'm going to die. So whatever, that he's going to go in just like, I have to do this thing. I have to do this thing because it needs to be done versus how much of Dumbledore's heatedness in that scene is about Mm -hmm. his own feelings of guilt about how he is using people as chess pieces because he thinks there's no other choice. But he also, I think, knows it sucks. He must. Yeah. Harry isn't the only person that Dumbledore this side of grooms, right? We have the entire Order of the Phoenix, which is made up, as far as I can tell, of Dumbledore's current and former students and colleagues. Yeah. And he has close personal relationships with some, but not all of them. And so Harry and Snape are our two probably biggest examples, but presumably also Lupin, because 
he and Lupin have had, like, secrets between the two of them since Lupin started at Hogwarts. And so I think this is very much Dumbledore's pedagogical style as well. But because it's in the service of defeating a fascist, we don't see it as necessarily being creepy or bad until we start to get into the details of how it functions. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, it's the same as, it's the same as Voldemort. Oh, it's the same as um, Slughorn. And it's also significant, I think, that one of the main memories we see, so we've got all of these memories that are associated with Voldemort's love of collecting. All of these memories that are about the things that he wants to collect. Mm -hmm. But one key memory is about Dumbledore himself going to collect Tom Riddle. That's right. Like he is the one who collects him. He does not go in person and collect other students, including other Muggleborn students. He didn't... Including Harry. He didn't go to <laughs> Harry. He sent Hagrid. That's right. But he goes and he collects Tom Riddle himself. Like, so there is this way, right? We see... Dumbledore doing this over and over again. We talked about him as an archaeon in an earlier mm -hmm. episode, as sort of archiving people at Hogwarts. But I think in this book, we can also think about him as a, as a collector. He collects Sybil Trelawney. He collects Horace Slughorn. He collects Tom Riddle. He collects Harry. He's collecting the Horcruxes. He's collecting the memories. Like, he's... He collects the house elves. <laughs> He collects a centaur. He's collecting the shit out of everything. He collects Dobby. He collects Winky. He collects Creature. So on the one hand, sure, it's narrative convenience. Let's just have them all come to Hogwarts. But they all come to Hogwarts to serve the puppet master. <laughs> yep. Like he believes in house elf autonomy, mm -hmm. but he doesn't free the house elves at Hogwarts. And that, again, makes me think of the way that Martinez Cola writes about, like, the collector's relationship to racism. Of, like, you will selectively choose students who you think are remarkable and be like, mm, yeah, no, that racism is bad for you. But the systems and structures <laughs> that are upholding it, mm -hmm. well, what really can be done? You're the fucking headmaster. Lots. Literally make so many decisions. You actively prevent the ministry from, and I quote, interfering at your school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yet when it comes to like the perpetual enslavement of a people. I mean, I think part of what feels so ostentatiously collecty about Hogwarts is... Mm -hmm. The fact that it is a private institution, that it is mm -hmm. a private boarding school that you have to be specially selected to go to. And so yeah. there's a basic structural logic in it that I think also points to a lot of that sort of appeal. I mean, I come back time and time again to this like basic problem in this series where we are supposed to think that hating muggles is the same as fascism, but everything about the muggle world is presented as being synonymous with banality 
lack of creativity, mm-hmm. misery. And so all you want, even though you're supposed to be suspicious of the collectors while simultaneously mm-hmm. desperately wanting to be collected. Totally. And I mean, isn't that what our relationship is to collectors anyway? Yes. When you when you don't think of the system as being changeable, then what you want is to be one of the chosen few who gets to get out of the shit pile and be given some special status. Oh my God, so much of our world functions this way. I don't know why, but I'm just thinking about high school football and how it is an entire system that is designed to make students compete with each other to the point where they let everything else just fall by the wayside so that they hone this one skill that only a small percentage of them will be given opportunities to then pursue that elsewhere. I mean, the absolutely bananas system whereby the students are divided into houses and those houses cumulatively gain or lose points throughout the year (laughs) and then one house wins at being students. And sometimes Dumbledore can just assign points at the very end and change the winner. Well, it's all arbitrary anyway, so why wouldn't he be able to do that? Indeed. Okay, so there's so much collecting here. But before we run out of time, I do want to just note one other interesting thing that stood out to me, Mm -hmm. which is how much Snape, as the Half-Blood Prince functions like a nightlight for Harry. Mm-hmm. It's unintentional. Snape would never want to be a nightlight for Harry. Nor for anyone. Nor I for think. anyone. Absolutely not. <laughs> no, he's very bad at teaching. But that nightlight function of exposing hidden curriculum, of showing how things actually work, of mm-hmm. taking the sort of impenetrability of traditional education and breaking it down based on learned experience, based on an understanding of systems. That's what the Half-Blood Prince is doing for Harry. And Harry, like he loves the Half-Blood Prince. He really loves him. And he loves him, I think, because nobody has ever been a nightlight for Harry before. Mm. I was trying to think if there are any allies, and I think Hagrid is an ally. Yeah, I agree that Hagrid is an ally, but I don't think Hagrid, in the sense of, like, providing opportunities. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe Hagrid doesn't even qualify. Like, Hagrid's not a nightlight, and Martinez Cola does specify that all allies are nightlights, and Hagrid isn't quite in the institution enough. To be playing that role. I mean, maybe just maybe the word for Hagrid is a friend. (laughs) Maybe it's just he's just an actual friend. Um, But he is there for Harry and is invested Mm -hmm. in Harry doing well. But like, I can't think of anybody who positions themselves as helping the students understand how to navigate this world. Maybe McGonagall a little bit sometimes. Yeah, I think McGonagall is probably the closest that we're going to get to a nightlight because she knows that Harry wants to be an Auror and she's going to help him navigate his way there. When Umbridge says that he'll never get there, she's like, I will 
I will die on this hill is essentially <laughs> what she says to Umbridge. And so she helps Harry not only navigate like the regular education ministry system or pipeline or whatever, but she also she's also there to help him navigate the education ministry under fascism pipeline, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, Lupin is a good teacher, but again, I don't think he's positioned such that he can. Yeah. I almost think we need to think about Lupin more akin to like faculty of color, Mm -hmm. right? Who can sort of like, he understands where his students are coming from, but he doesn't have the institutional power that white faculty do in, in this reading, right? So we need to think about people who, I guess you can think about Hagrid that way too, um, because his half giant status is sort of what makes him such a liminal figure. So thinking about, you know, people who are in these these central positions of power in the institution and how many of them are collecting Harry and not actually helping him. A lot of bad pedagogy in these books. Yeah. So you are totally right, Hannah. That is why it makes so much sense that Harry bonds so fiercely with this like faceless persona who is helping him navigate something he's always really struggled with. Yeah, absolutely. And that has been gatekept from him, that he has been told he is bad at, that he has been taught by somebody who is actively opposed to his doing well. And then finally here he has a mentor who is helping him understand how things work. While meanwhile, Dumbledore is like continuing to actively gatekeep his access to knowledge despite having promised to tell him everything. And Slughorn is like, I have a secret and I'll never ever tell it to you. Like everybody (laughs) around him is just like, "Mm -mm, no secrets, secrets and lies. Secrets and lies forever. We love them. Secrets and lies. And then here's this one person who in his mind is like, here is just the truth. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, unfortunately, that that was an accident. And that person had no intention of helping him. God, what a betrayal to learn. The person who taught you so much could have been teaching you so much all along, but they didn't want to. They didn't want to. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. We want to take a moment here in our endnotes to let you know about a small change in how Witch Please is made. We have lovingly, mutually, consciously uncoupled from Not Sorry, and moving forward, we will be produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press. That means that you can find our episodes on ACAST, as per usual, and on all of your favorite podcatchers, but also at wlupress.wlu.ca slash which hyphen please. You don't have to memorize that URL, but you know, it's there. Oh, and we're still on Twitter and Instagram at ohwitchplease. Mm-hmm. We need you to know from the bottom of our hearts how grateful we are to Not Sorry for the past two years. They made this reboot possible, and helped us Mm -hmm. grow into a sustainable show. For you as listeners, basically nothing's going to change except the content of this outro, when you will hear us thank now 
somebody different. <laughs> for us as show creators, this is just a way to ensure that Witch Please can keep going for as long as we want to keep making it. And lucky for us, our wonderful producer has come with us during this transition, <laughs> which means Witch Please continues to be produced by Hannah Rehack, aka Coach. Thanks, Coach. <whistles> Always on our team. If you are into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me desperately Googling song lyrics that might fit into this transition sentence. <laughs> <clears throat> Thanks this week, too. Oh, yeah, it's a good list this time. Kim Heemskirk, a very grateful listener. Lijniej. Kazo93, or perhaps C-A-Zoe93, Amala892, Lily589. What the hell's going on, you guys? Um, Eve Lou86, Chappika, School Librarian, Buttons the Surly Samurai, Danny Banny82, Chalbs1998, Joey Teresia, Slappy Auk or Slap Yawk <laughs> Gold Star underscore bisexual EJ Max 237 milliliters Fiona likes cats. Oh, I do too, Fiona. Vincent OFP My Home by the Road Doughboy 1996 Katie A2K14 and Arianak. Mm. Wow. What a list. Mm. Mm. Love, I love watching that. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. It's an absolutely unparalleled miracle that we can make this show in a financially sustainable way. Paying coach for all of her brilliant and indispensable work. Mm -hmm. Look forward to more exciting bonuses in the year to come, including more live Patreon exclusive events. You can check out patreon.com slash witch please if you want to learn more. We'll be back next episode for more discussion of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. But until then... Later, witches! <laughs> <laughs>